This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. How are we doing? Back again, back again. Short turnaround for me, not so much for the podcast, but actually, well, shorter turnaround for you guys than for me because I'm releasing these in the same day. But can you dig it? I can. Hello, everyone. This is Sam LaCrosse back with another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. And not really much has changed since I, um, again, I don't know, like I always kind of wonder like if I just, like should I just start going into the blog and reading it? before people or do I actually like make an attempt to like you know rationalize my life with people I mean I'm not really much exciting has happened I just moved but that's kind of you know the move is kind of fading away and I'm like settling into the normalcy of what's supposed to be going on which is a good thing and so now it's just kind of I'm like I'm fucking getting a couch later so I mean that's something that I can look forward to so I mean that, that that's about it but anyways I think this is a very important thing that I wrote, a piece that I wrote, and I wanted to get it out because I it's something that I've been hearing gaining more steam and I've been questioning a lot in my head, so I wanted to do some in-depth analysis on it. And I actually got some what what was the word I was looking for? I um I got some extra time to write on it because of the move and because of everything going on and my fundraiser and all that other um all those other things that were happening. So I got a chance to really reread it this last um, week before I added on, and I've had to finish the final section and edit it and all that other stuff. So wanted to get that done and really kind of make an attempt to get, um, you know, constructive with how I were to treat it and everything like that and how to be the most compelling in my messaging to people. So let's just get right into it. So if I had to hate, <clears throat> that's a great start. <laughs> If I had to hate on one population of the people in this world, it would undoubtedly be the Bitcoiners. These guys are the fucking worst. They're awful. Pieces of human garbage and or feces that absolutely muck up the world with how atrociously they behave towards one another. They're the biggest group of cultural snowflakes I've potentially ever seen. They can't take criticism, even if it's constructive. They jump down your throat with their friends to back them up. They're too pussy to do it with just themselves. They need to have their ideology behind them. They can't seem to abandon it. They should. That's the new rule number five, by the way. That is not to say, however, that this group of people is wrong, because I personally don't believe that they are. I've been labeled a hater of cryptocurrency by a lot of people, with most other peop others who are completely uninvolved with the topic not giving a single fuck where I put my hat in the ring in the first place. But that being said, I think what they have to say is important, even if they're a bunch of cockolas about the way they go about it. Recently, to educate myself more on the subject, I read the book Bitcoin Billionaires by Ben Mesrich, 
who also co-authored, or co not co-authored, authored The Accidental Billionaires, the book that eventually became the sensational Academy-nominated film The Social Network. And even though the book has its primary focus drawn on Mark Zuckerberg's adversaries, the Winklevoss twins, there is a side plot that I found much more interesting. Charlie Shrem is probably the biggest flame out in the history of modern business that you've never heard of. Born into a tightly knit Jewish-Syrian community in Brooklyn, Shrem soon became known as a boy genius. He had an energy level that was nearly unmatched, which resulted in an unfathomable amount of ambition, brain power, and psychological inertia. He was constantly searching for the next big thing, wanting to break out of the Jewish stereotypes of banking and finance to carve his way into the world of entrepreneurship and make a dent in the universe. However, this had a dichotomy. Charlie Schramm thought very little of himself. He wasn't particularly handsome, and on top of that, he was incredibly short. He had horrific self-confidence and esteem, which showed in nearly all situations. His parents were incredibly overbearing and sheltered him from the majority of his young life, trying desperately to keep him from what they thought he should be. To cope, he drank copious amounts of alcohol and smoked enough of the devil's lettuce to make the dog father do a double take. He was trapped and wanted a way to break out. And he eventually found an escape hatch while combing through the internet, where he discovered several internet forums talking about something called Bitcoin. Developed in 2019 by an unknown entity slash person, people don't even know if the dude is real or not, to be honest with you, named Satoshi Nakamoto, the blockchain-based digital currency was a brilliant combination of finance, engineering, and mathematics that was, at the point, almost completely unheard of. It was mostly a gimmick currency, then trading for pennies on the dollar with almost none of the 20 million, 21 million bitcoins in existence yet to be found. But Shrem, being the boy genius that he was, saw a golden opportunity. It wasn't just an escape from his current situation. It was an escape from the world itself. Through this technology, Shrem, and soon many others, saw an attempt to remake the world. All he had to do was get, out, get it out there and find a way to make money from it. Soon, he was in touch with another person in the forum from England, and they went into business together. The company they founded was named BitInstant, whose purpose was to facilitate the then-few transactions of Bitcoin so that they could connect holders of the currency to people that sold goods and services. At the ripe age of 22, Shrem had a small yet booming business going in his parents' garage. His network soon began to rapidly expand, partnering with major power players in the field of high finance, libertarian economics, software engineering, and venture capital. Among those people were the aforementioned Winklevoss twins, who, like Shrem, immediately saw the potential in Bitcoin. They also immediately saw the potential in Shrem and wanted to use him as their first major angel investment to dive headfirst into this new world. A signed contract and $800,000 of angel investment later, Shrem and the Winklevoss twins went into business together, with Shrem running the twins all the Bitcoin they could handle. Through these fast-paced transactions, the Winklevoss soon owned an absolutely absurd 1% of all Bitcoin in, that was currently in existence. It was then trading at around $7 per coin. To the credit of the Winklevoss twins, they went all in on Shrem, setting up meetings with several power players and expanding their network at a rapid pace. They held meetings such as with people such as Richard Branson, Naval Ravikant, and John Abercrombie, trying to push these new breakthrough investment to get more buy-in for their product. And to their further credit, it worked. It turns out they weren't as privileged as David Fincher made them look out to be. Soon, Bitcoin's price and presence began to rise dramatically, and with it, Shrem's business. Soon. An absolutely mind-boggling 70% of all Bitcoin transactions were funneled through BitInstant. Shrem was widely recognized as a pioneer in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency economy. T-shirts with his face on them were sold at convention centers. A lot of people suddenly wanted to interview him, and he took everyone he could get his hands on. He moved out of his parents' basement and rented a penthouse above a nightclub that he was the co-owner of. He would go to that nightclub every night and party until the morning. His nickname was the King of Bitcoin. He soon fell in love with a cocktail waitress that worked there. 
To his surprise, she loved him back. Charlie Shrem was on top of the world. The boy wonder was now the man. But soon, problems began to occur. His heavy use of the various substances he consumed began to take his toll on his relationships with both his outside investors and his business partners, the Winklevi being the most concerned of all of them. It turns out, back then, Bitcoin was even more wild than it is today. Half the people he trusted were the most fuck absolute fucking lunatics, who were open anarchists against government and social order. One compared taxation to rape. Another said that borders were a form of discrimination. Shrem, being too close to the situation and probably feeling a little bit of over -emotion emotional overcompensation due to his upbringing, began to view these people not as business associates, but friends. And this began to take his toll on his, a toll on his business as well. BitInstant was not compliant with currency exchanges and regulatory bodies. They did not verify who was using their services and for what purpose. This is that whole, quote, anarchist libertarian thing that, one, that they summoned the fuck how thought was a good idea. He blew through additional investment by the Winklevi with no idea how to pay them back. His business was hemorrhaging money. The Winklevi had soon had enough and began to formally distance themselves from their former partner by cutting their losses and turning inward to do the job themselves. And then, in the words of Freddie Mercury, the hammer fell. When he and his now new girlfriend were going through customs at JFK Airport, he was arrested and thrown into jail on three charges, including money laundering. One of his biggest customers, a man named Ross Ulbricht, he went anonymous in his dealings with Shrem, go figure, was the head of the infamous Bitcoin network called the Silk Road, whose main method of business was drug trafficking by using the unregulated Bitcoin blockchain network. Ulbricht was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his horrendous activity, and Shrem could have faced the same fate. Fortunately, due to Shrem's mostly innocent intentions and a fair good bit of legal help, he was only sentenced to a few years in prison. But, in the end, it didn't matter. Charlie Shrem lost everything. He had to move back in with his family, who he had cut off in the years prior. They hated him. Their relationship was hostile, to put it mildly, and they made his life a living hell. He was separated from Courtney, the cocktail waitress that he, that he, married, that he later married. He had to do demeaning manual labor by becoming a dishwasher at a halfway house to prove he could be, quote, rehabilitated. BitInstant imploded and shut down, his once thriving business completely crushed into oblivion. To add insult to injury, he wasn't even that deep into Bitcoin as an investment. As much as he adored and was passionate about the product and technology, he had hardly put any skin in the game. After all of this, Shrem had only a couple thousand dollars to his name. By contrast, and not shortly after all this went down, the Winklevi became the first Bitcoin billionaires. As of this writing, Bitcoin is now trading for slightly more than $37,500 a coin. His story is a cautionary tale to a theme all too common for discussion in modern America, one that I'm hearing from more and more people seemingly every day. It's becoming much more vocalized and centered in the mainstream, and it's something that deserves our attention. Expectations. Recently, I was hanging out with a group of friends at their apartment where one made a very strange proclamation that she was getting rid of all expectations for all people. She was sick of being let down. She was sick of being hurt. So she decided to throw away all hope of anyone meeting what her expectations were. The interesting thing is, I can understand where she's coming from completely. Even more so, I empathize with it. As human beings, we are wired to run away from pain. And there are studies that have shown, particularly with a recent spike in mental health diagnoses, that emotional pain can hurt far worse than any physical pain. And there is immense amount of pain about getting let down, whether that buys any entity that revolves around a goal or, in other words, an expectation. People don't want to be hurt more than they already are. This can be a brutal world that we live in, and the logical thing would be to remove any more avenues from pain as possible so that we can optimize our relationship with the non-brutal aspects of said world. So, in many cases like my friends, 
people are getting rid of their goals entirely to pursue something else. But what is that, quote, something else? Well, in my estimation, it is whatever falls below your expectations. I think that's just quite a logical answer, given that if your expectation is the highest point, this would be the exact opposite of that, i.e. anything below your expectations. This means a lot of things. Goals are going to soon vanish. Why risk being let down when you could be happy with failure? Striving will soon cease to exist. Why try to break new pavement when there's perfectly good sidewalk to scroll down? It's a logical assumption. But it's 100% wrong. Maybe it won't be catastrophic as dramatized as the description I just laid out, but it could end up being miraculously detrimental. It's very wrong, and I would argue dangerous, to throw ambition to the wind without a care in the world. We live in a society that not only survives but thrives on the ambition of its citizenry. A lot of people tend to get this point confused, saying that they need to, quote, lower their expectations because they don't end up becoming Kim Kardashian or Satya Nadella or whatever the fuck. The good thing is that this assertion is 100% wrong as well. Due to a lot of current happenings in our culture, our perception of this lone world has gotten to our society, particularly young people, twisted up so fucking much that they have no idea what to make about how to navigate their own aspirations and, therefore, their futures. They don't know what they want because they're either too afraid to pursue it or think that it's too lofty to reach. The conundrum of expectations is a very difficult one to analyze, simply because in doing so we automatically put ourselves out of our own realm of order and into chaos, the unknown, where we don't know where to swim in order to keep us afloat. Not having expectations for your life and for other people is the wrong way to go about living your life. In doing so, you will automatically cheat yourself of the potential of your future. You remove all bargaining power that you have in order to navigate a resolution that could provide, prove not only beneficial, but highly impactful from your life. I do not believe it's a wise decision to do this. In undertaking your own future, you want to make sure that the chips fall so that you benefit the most. So in order to analyze the expectations conundrum, we need to first analyze our society's outlook on expectations, dig deeper into the genesis of how we mischaracterize them, and then realize how we can flip the script and get better at utilizing them for your own personal benefit. So take a word from our friend Mr. Shrem, light up some devil's lettuce if that's your thing, and let's get going. In 2015, a widely read but non-mainstream internet blogger dropped a nuke on the already exploding industry of self-help. In an estimated 12-minute read, the author's wondrous observation about a gigantic flaw that no one seemed to notice single-handedly cracked the bullshit matrix and flipped an entire industry on its head. It has since never recovered. The post was entitled The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and was written by Mark Manson, an internet and lifestyle blogger who helped men with dating advice and women. He lived off of very little money, had almost no worldly possessions other than what he needed to run his business, and had virtually been nomadic from the United States for almost 15 years. He never stayed in one place for more than a few months at a time. He never considered himself special. He was just another speck of dust in the grand dust bunny that composed the cosmos. He certainly didn't envision that this one post would light the world on fire. But it did. And not only did he invert an existing industry, he created a new industry. In what Manson himself called negative self-help, he rejected the troubling notions of the industry like affirmations, manifestation, and self-love. This was, as expected, as controversial as it was enlightening to people. But Manson persisted. After seeing how many millions of times his blog was read, he soon was in contact with a publisher, taking the skeleton of the blog article and extrapolating out as a book with the same name. It has since nearly sold nearly 13 million copies since this publication in 2016, and is nearly universally regarded as the defining, quote, self-help book of our generation. Manson was a contrarian, but not one that acted like a cock all the time. Those guys are just assholes. They have no utility. But Manson was different. 
he was incredibly useful. He noticed that a giant hole was emerging throughout our culture, had the courage to dive into it, and exploited it to expose the headassery that was warping everyone's minds and twisting everyone's brains into pretzels. He went against the grain, exposing the fraudulent, quote, self-help con artists and taking all of their bullets so that the people could know the truth. And that truth was centered around one central theme, expectations. From Manson, quote, Because when we give too many fucks, when we choose to give a fuck about everything, then we feel as though we are perpetually entitled to feel comfortable and happy all the time. And that's when life fucks us. End quote. Ouch, that hurts. But the truth hurts, and the truth it was. The first problem with our modern perception of expectations is that we expect too much out of too many things. Therefore, when we do so, we spend most of our existence speaking to things that A, we probably don't really care much about at all, and consequently B, we then become seemingly let down by everything. This brings us to an important divergence, one that I believe deserves some further explaining. At a friend's mental health group in my college town of Columbus, Ohio, the biggest debate within that circle that broke out when I attended was centered around the topic of expectations versus standards. It's an incredibly complex argument to make, given that the world so, can, can so carelessly and easily become conflated with one another. However, I believe that this distinction is the crux to the point, so let's dive into it and explore further. According to the dictionary, the definition for the word expectation, as derived from the word expected, is, quote, to consider bound in duty and obligation, end quote. The definition for the word standard, by, con by contrast, is, quote, something established by authority, custom, or general consent as a model or example, end quote. Even in definition, the words sound incredibly alike. But, like most words that sound incredibly alike, there is one key distinction that causes the aforementioned divergence in meaning. That one key distinction, as far as I can tell, is regarding levels. In other words, there's levels to this shit, young buck. A standard, based on the core of the definition, is the general example of something within society. It's the stereotype, the vanilla ice cream. It's the floor of what we would expect in any entity. An expectation, on the other hand, is more elevated than that. An expectation is a relationship. It is, quote, bound in duty or obligation. In any relationship, there must be a unified sense of, of duty and obligation. Otherwise, there would be no point to the relationship at all. And this doesn't have to be interpersonal either. If you get into a car crash and your airbags don't inflate to break your face to prevent you from breaking your body, that's a problem. The expectations of your car's safety metrics has failed. On the other hand, if the car can get you from point A to point B, that's a standard. It's the bare minimum of the functionality of what a car is supposed to do for you. Back to Manson. Manson believed a lot of our problems are a result of the oversaturation of our levels of things, particularly involving people and values. If you try to treat everybody as the same and value it as the same, of course you're going to be disappointed. Remember, a man who values everything values nothing, and a man who need no needs nothing attracts everything. Shout out Nas. And this is where his jam on entitlement comes into play. With our over-exaggeration of our base metrics for the general consensus of people, of course we're going to be setting up ourselves up for failure and disappointment. This is the reality of the situation. You are going to fail at most things in your life. The vast majority of people that you encounter in your life will not give a single fuck about you. You will be just a meaningless face and a meaningless crowd. And this is okay, because that's how it should be. It might sound like I'm disproving my own argument here, but I'm not. Let me ask you something. Was that above paragraph rant talking about an expectation or a standard? The answer would be that it would be a standard. Remember, levels. For the general consensus of people, a standard is not the same as an expectation. There is no relationship between the two at all, simply because they have a different connotation in terms of their factors of significance. Here's an example to make this easier to understand. Say you're on a dating app. The one I use is Hinge, so let's give it some clout. 
You go through profiles and you either like or dislike someone in the app, casually throwing them aside like it was nothing at all. This introductory swiping is the standard. There are a lot of people that have hinge profiles. Let's say you like a bunch of people that you find attractive, but most of them don't like you back. If you succumb to the standard trap, odds are that this will bother you. Odds are even more that it will bother you a lot. But this is completely irrational, because our feelings are irrational. Everything we do is based on feelings and later attempted to be justified by logic. Remember the fast feeling and slow thinking brains. Think about it this way. These are the people that do not know a single thing about you but what you look like, and probably your best, by the way, and some bullshit prompts in your profile, most of which are most likely exaggerated as well. They're seeing a caricature, not the real you. So, if a person's a caricature, a derivative of what that person actually is more than likely, and has no stake in your emotional or physical well-being other than that's happening to please the algorithm on a technology platform, what the fuck sense does it make to elevate it past where it should be? The answer? None. At all. But let's say the magic happens and you end up going on a date with someone from Hinge. You like this person. The person likes you back. You both have a lovely evening and want to see each other again. More magic happens and you think that after a few times hanging out it could actually go somewhere. Then the matrix fully cracks and you two to begin a relationship and are actually happy past the honeymoon phase where you're either getting blown three times a day or sucking the other person's toes one at a time once you run out of saliva or whatever the fuck you crazy kids do nowadays. This is different than a standard. Well, except for the blowjobs and toe sucking. I think that's pretty standard. Now you both have skin in the game. You've created a relationship, one in which each party is now accountable to, in a, to the other in some form or fashion. In other words, you have created an expectation of one another. You can no longer succumb to the standard trap, simply dismissing one another in the form of a dating app swipe. No, 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 no. When the stakes get raised, you automatically elevate your general standard to a full-on expectation. And if there is one word that categorizes expectations, it would be pressure. Because, this, because expectations are pressure. It's easy to fall to the level of a standard, but incredibly difficult to, level, to rise to the level of an expectation. Floors are low for a reason, so everyone that can have the capacity to walk on them. It's much harder to touch a ceiling, something that requires effort and skill to manage. The fact of the matter is, not a lot of people have developed the capacity to handle pressure. It's largely been removed out of the fabric of our culture due to things such as social mobility and technology. Not a lot of people have worried about starving because of our abundance of food. Not a lot of people have to worry about having clean water to drink or finding shelter. The bare minimums are, most likely, met. The standards for living here have not just been met. They've been basically totally erased from our basic hierarchy of needs. So, back to our dating app relationship example. Imagine that you're six months into the relationship and you two are happy. Your relationship is mutualistic. You fight, but it's constructive. Your expectations of one another, and most importantly yourself, are being met. But imagine one day you go over to your significant other's house and they're completely indifferent. They don't give up from stuffing their face with cheese puffs and being binging lost in order to greet you. They don't ask you how your day was. They seem completely indifferent to your entire existence. This would be, in the, mild, in the mildest sense, completely and utterly bizarre. I wouldn't be shocked if you stopped dead in your tracks and asked your significant other what the, when the actual fuck is wrong with them. But if you did, they probably would look at you like you're the strange one. And then you realize, in all your horror, that the worst thing that could have possibly happened has happened. They've fallen back to the level of the standard. And this is where we run into issues, and where I think a lot of people are getting confused and hurt by this conundrum of expectations. If you do not know the difference between an expectation and a standard, you will most likely be incredibly emotionally vulnerable to everything. You will be hurt by every arrow that is slung at you, without even knowing that it's an arrow in the first place. In other words, you become so emotionally entitled and narcissistic 
that your emotional world will begin to revolve around everyone and everything within your orbit. This goes without saying as being a large problem. It's not a big deal if a short exchange over a dating app goes nowhere. It's a very big deal if your significant other stops giving a fuck about you and your relationship. It's not a big deal if your car won't start one day out of the entire time that you own it. It's a very big deal if your car's safety features do not function properly and you get chucked through the windshield like a five-year-old with a homemade slingshot. It's a, not a very big deal if you pass somebody in the street and they don't acknowledge your presence as a potentially amazing person. It's a very big deal if your best friend for eight years decides to flip on you and accuse you of being a supporter of ethnic cleansing. Trust me, it happened to me not too long ago. It's not a fun experience, let me tell you. The main reason that our culture's focus on expectations is warped is because of a confusion of it with standards. This is an easy problem to understand people having, a hard one to spot, particularly within yourself, and even a harder one to fix. But in order to truly understand it, we must dig deeper into the genesis of this problem and see where its roots dwell in order to excavate it from the ground. About three months ago, I started a fundraiser. Pre-beer virus, I used to do it all the time. I had begun to ramp it up pretty severely, getting several local bars and businesses from my campus involved in the crackdown in my local home state, Ohio, forced us to keep it in perspective and shut it down. It was a shame. A lot of those places could have really used the business. It was also a very big personal blow to me. I love helping people in fundraising for causes. I believe I've had it pretty good in my life and think it's a personal obligation for those who've had it pretty good in life to extend a helping hand to those who haven't. Due to the nature of the world now and the absolute dumpster fuck of a year we had last year, I decided I wanted to immerse myself into something that would challenge me both personally and charitably. So, I decided to set up the Something Good Fund via a GoFundMe page. With the donations spread between five charities that centered on military veterans, small business relief, and special needs children, I had high hopes for it. My goal was to raise $30,000 while doing 10 MRF workouts in less than 10 hours on Memorial Day. I underwent a massive marketing campaign for it, which, with all my other responsibilities, was quite taxing. I totally reshaped my body composition to prepare for those 10 hours of hell, praying that I was, it would be worth it and I would live up to the hype. However, I'll be the first to tell you that was a complete and utter dismal failure. As of this writing, donations didn't even surpass 2000 or almost barely surpassed $2,000. I caught the beer virus in the most inconvenient time, right in the middle of my training, and caught it badly. I don't know what in the fuck kind of strain hit me, but it absolutely decimated me. I couldn't eat solid food for four days, I couldn't work out for two weeks, which caused my muscle to atrophy to an extraordinary degree. When I started to get better, I was hit with a migraine that lasted 26 hours. My endurance is absolutely shot. My diet had to be radically altered so that I could keep food down. When I did go back and work out, I could barely get through about a fifth of what I normally did, and it took me a week to increase that number without having a splitting headache throughout that process. Even now, I can't run very far without ab muscles on my right side, which has always historically given me trouble, seizing up. I'm supposed to run 20 miles, and I was supposed to run 20 miles. I ended up not, in, not even completing the workout. I've had problems with severe cramping my entire life, and I got 15 miles in before my legs completely seized up on me. After my first week of cautious workouts that occurred after I caught the virus, I got a text message from my mom as I was going through my Saturday morning workout. I was low that morning, lower than I had been since I started. I felt miserable. Everything I had set into motion and worked incredibly hard towards for the last two months was completely falling apart. Worst off, I felt like I had failed all the people that I had promised to help. Not only had I underdelivered, but I had done so in incredible fashion, raising slightly under 15 times less than what I had promised, which was even lower at the time. Succumbing to my selfishness and victimhood, I typed up a sob story to my mom. 
I was incredibly disappointed in myself. I told her I wanted to quit, that I should just cut my losses, donate the money, and get back to a point where I didn't have to make myself absolutely fucking miserable every morning for months for the most incredibly difficult physical challenge I might ever take in my life. I thought that my goal was a reasonable expectation, but I wasn't so sure anymore. My mom, not one to succumb to me thinking pessimistically, and thank goodness for that, called me after the gym. I drove around for a while as she talked, or as she and I both talked, and she told me a very interesting story of her own. Years ago, her and my dad had been invited to a charity event in downtown Cleveland on behalf of my dad's work. It was a pretty high-profile event, almost black tie. Some serious players in my dad's industry were supposed to be going there, where they would shell out for specific charitable causes of the evening. The size of a dinner plate would reportedly approach close to $1,000. This wasn't a GoFundMe. This is some serious shit. But then came the kicker. The average size of the donation per person was a whopping $100. This, my mom told my mind-blown ass, was how people really view charity. They want to dress up, go to a nice party, eat some nice food, but in reality, they don't want to do much other than be seen doing those things. They throw money into the pot to make others feel good, sure. But do they really want to help with that charitable cause? My mom said the answer to that question was a definitive no in most cases. A lot of people just want to be seen. Nothing more, nothing less. This perplexed me to a large degree. All my life, I was taught to assume the best from people. That people wanted to be good for the sake of being good. That they were naturally selfless. But in the past few years, I've come to the consensus that this assumption, which is widely held in our culture, especially by the influential, could potentially be incorrect. Something else could be at work here. In the past two years, I've done a lot of research in the philosophies of Eastern religions, Buddhism and Taoism being the two most prominent that I've looked into. Taoism, I believe, has had the most profound influence on me, albeit indirectly, of any religious mode of thinking in my life. Even though I was raised Christian, I was absorbing Taoist thought through an unlikely source. Star Wars. Star Wars, to the little knowledge of most of my fellow raving fans, is Taoism with laser swords and spaceships. And one of my favorite lines of the entire series come from, comes from the great Jedi Master Yoda. Quote, You must unlearn what you have learned. End quote. How profound a statement that is, and how true I found it, particularly when studying that form of thought. If there's one thing that both religions, but particularly Taoism, stress, it would be letting go of what your perception of the world is. Whether that is the Buddha realizing there is plight and poverty in the world away from his kingdom, or the yin and yang slapping you in the face of the realization of what, who you actually are at your core, it all comes down to the same thing. In Buddhism, however, this takes a slightly different turn. You must not only unlearn what you have learned, you must let go of even who you are to become who you could be. In decreasing your level of attachment to things around you that may or not matter, you automatically become elevated in your value structure. You can assess things objectively and truly see from a bird's eye view what the composition of your life really is. And as it turns out, there is one person who particular this advice to heart more than any I'd ever seen previously. Mark Manson. Mark Manson is a Buddhist, and it shows in how he lives his life. Much like the Buddha himself, Manson shed almost all of his worldly possessions and traveled the world for almost 15 years, barely living off of any money and learning how the earth functions by putting his own boots on the ground. In traveling everywhere from South America to Russia, over 55 countries in total, Manson began to see one trend that, sp trend that spread through his travels. Nothing is certain. Like, at all. Cultures around the world, with the exception of things like hard science, are malleable. They are built gradually over time and can, unfortunately, be torn down in much less time. And no one saw that better than Mark Manson. As he began to familiarize himself with the cultures that defined him, he was born and raised in the heart of Christian conservative Texas and was educated in agnostic liberal Boston, 
He stuck to Buddhism simply because he, how, he saw how fragile world culture can really be. Everyone can be the same, yet we all choose to be different. Being different is much more difficult than being the same. So why would we do this? Because we construct our own worlds that we live in. We create our own values, strictly because out of the fear that we know what happens if we don't have any. Mark Manson himself has admitted that he's not even a real person. He has constructed himself in his image of who he wants to be. He might be a person living on the planet, but who he is is completely up to him. He knows that he is a real person, but he has made himself into who that real person is. Everything else is just noise. You mind fucked yet? From this immersion in his Buddhist appreciation and nomadic background, Manson then came up with the central tenet of his philosophy on the world. Humans suck. In trying to make ourselves into respectable people who can take an individualized presence in the world, our value structures can become easily fucked. As you covered in Value Economics posts, it's incredibly hard to come up with your own values and even harder to act upon them as you interact with the world. So, in his own words, Manson's advice is simply try to try and suck less. But there's a problem here. It's hard to suck less than other humans, particularly when you have to ask them to do an activity as difficult as this. So, Manson developed an antidote for that, too, that is also based on Eastern religion. Learn to devalue what humans are really capable of, including your own. In other, more blunt words, you and most likely everyone you meet is not going to be special. This is also a hard concept to grasp. Striving is embedded in America's culture and, combined with toxic positivity, can be a death sentence to our mental health. In my previous post, I talked about the duality of man and how we, have, all, we, how we all have a side of our personality that we largely ignore because we don't like to see the after effects and how they can harm ourselves. But, I argue, we must look at it in order to fulfill our true potential within ourselves. I am also arguing that we must do the same with society. We must look upon the badness of society and what people really are in order to navigate it effectively. This is not an Eastern religious concept, by the way. Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, a devout Jewish and Christian worshiper respectively, were talking about this in the same thing in Peterson's return to Shapiro's Sunday special podcast. However, they did it in terms of another thing that people tend to look upon with rose-colored glasses. Nature. Nature is a very beautiful thing to observe. We should all be glad that our Earth has it. Well, until we descend into a fiery pit of hell in 10 years, shout out AOC. But even though nature is beautiful, it can be quite terrifying to look at. To use a Family Guy reference, damn nature, you scary. In the most lush forest of the world reside some of the most atrociously horrific displays of brutality and viciousness that you'll ever see. In the bluest seas, there are creatures that have some unfathomable horrific composition that can come and kill us at any moment. We know more about outer space than we do about our own oceans. In any scenario, you don't know what's going to come out and get you. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. So what the fuck does any of this nonsensical ranting have to do with expectations? Well, it has everything to do with expectations, actually. The main point is, you must equalize your expectations with how things actually interact with and work in the world, or you, end up or you will end up residing in a living hell. If you look at every goal, person, and thing in your life with rose-colored glasses on, you might not be able to determine when something is actually going to really lead to a relationship or not. If you cannot form a relationship with your world, you will develop no expectations. And if you do not have any expectations, you do not give yourself even a fighting chance for hope. And if people become hopeless, why would they go back to the thing that apparently made them so in the first place? This is wrong because everything that have put you in this place is not nearly enough to be expectation. But as I've bludgeoned you over the head with repeatedly, we are feeling-based creatures. We tend to throw logic to the wayside in these types of scenarios. So, what happens when we're disappointed with everything, so much that we give up on expectations in our relationships with the world? Well, we start to treat it like shit. And to these hypothetical people's credit, why wouldn't they? 
they absolutely have a reason to do so. You don't want to get involved with things that involve you getting backdoored every two seconds. If people don't have expectations for how people act and behave, especially among the people that are most important to them, this is what defines an expectation, by the way, in case you've forgotten, then why not trample all over it like the narcissistic and selfish asshole that you are? If you want to look for a very valid reason as to why our relationships with our families, friends, and communities have begun to dissipate with our generation's ascension, look no further than this one. I think it's pretty valid, if not simply for the fact that people don't like it when other people treat each other like shit. Forget unconditional trust. We don't trust anyone anymore. The pandemic certainly didn't help matters, but I think it's pretty safe to say that this trend was happening well before COVID-19 unleashed itself from a lab in China. But, as we said before, this is simply a mistake, a trick played on itself by the human mind and multiplied throughout the masses through horrible vices like conformity and groupthink. To break out of them, we need to find how to flip the script on the modern lie of what expectations are and how we can use that new understanding to help us, under, help us navigate the world and show others the path. So, going back to the last post again, we talked about the Nietzsche and Ubermensch, the elevated individual who creates a new hierarchy of values that transcends the olden times of religion. Zarathustra, the original Ubermensch, was the genesis of this powerful idea, the most powerful idea of all time. Since the publication of Nietzsche's work, there have been very few people, both fictional and non-fictional, that have fit this description. But I think there's one character that is specifically fitted for this scenario that can show us how to flip the script on expectations, even though it's not the person you might originally think of. John Bender. John Bender, played by Judd Nelson in the most iconic coming-of-age film of all time, The Breakfast Club, is a punk. He verbally assaults his fellow students. He smokes cigarettes and pot inside buildings. He vehemently despises the establishment and the people that run it. He somehow thinks it's okay to wear fingerless gloves inside of buildings. His life fucking sucks. He's resentful to everyone that has it better than him. But John Bender is also something else besides all of these things. John Bender is real. He sees everyone and everything as they are. He does not own a single pair of rose-colored glasses. He sees the world as someone should see the world, should they be observing it properly, as it is. At the beginning of the film, when he's put in Saturday detention with the four other students, well, except for Allison, but let's not give everything away, the others think he's a jerk for pointing out the various contradictions about who they think they are. He drops nukes left and right on people's perception of themselves and their worlds when trying to assault him. The counter, to counter the attempts to dish it back to him, he counters much like our friend Eminem, with incredible vulnerability. He knows how much his life sucks and how much the world can be cruel to him, and he uses it to take all the wind out of their sails. But this, at the end, proves liberating. In the final scene, where the totalitarian principal comes in and looks at their writing assignment they had to do for, for the day, he finds one paper that is written by the nerd student. He is stunned to see that they have, apparently, shunned their collective identities of who, they thought, of who he thought they were the ones that he used to abuse, bully, and intimidate them. You don't know us, they say. He looks around flustered and defeated, unable to make any sense of what has happened. About a month ago, I was talking to my best friend over FaceTime. I was going through a rough spot with someone whom I once knew, someone whom I was in a relationship with, but since it drifted apart from me and had started a whole new life without me anywhere near it. Me and this person had been incredibly close, closer than anyone I'd ever been with in my entire life, including my best friend. It was getting to a point where it was constantly bogging me down with questions and self-doubt. I simply couldn't get it out of my head. My friend has had a hard life, much harder than mine or most anyone else I know. She has experienced a lot of trauma in her life, but, no, but one experience shook her up more than anything previously, and with good reason. 
She had gone to seek help numerous times, but she, to her credit, knew that she needed to take it up a notch in order to rid herself of this problem. Last fall, my friend began to undertake a highly aggressive form of therapy, one far more heightened than any of her previous experiences. The goal, in her own words, was to break her, to completely shatter her spirit in order to get her to move past this horrific ordeal and move beyond it permanently. Her therapist did not give her slack or let her try to get out of talking out of the situation. Her therapist was brutally upfront, and together they were able to break through the massively fortified wall she put up. She got better. Now, while my experience is not nearly the caliber of my friends, I began to feel like I needed something similar. Like Bane, I wanted someone who could break my psyche over their knee and force me to build myself back up. I wanted the pain to go away. I wanted to retake and repurpose the land that resided between my ears. I didn't want to keep it from holding me back from potentially meeting new people who could actually fulfill my needs in the future. I needed to ditch the fantasy for reality. Out of her privacy, I never asked my friend about any of the details of her experience other than what she first told me that she was going, to which my response was that I was very happy for her and hope she got better. However, now that she was out and doing much better, I felt compelled to ask as it pertained to my own situation. I thought it could be of tremendous utility in order to get it to transform my life to back to where I to felt where I needed it to be. So I asked her, and her response was, in typically fashion, incredibly profound. My friend said that, at the beginning, she desired the outcome of the therapy would make her happy. However, it didn't. The reality of the situation did not change, but something else did. Instead of becoming happy, she became something else. Okay. She simply accepted what happened to her, acknowledged it, and moved on. It was a bad experience, clearly, but that was it. A bad experience. For a long time, she had let that experience create a false perception in her head about things similar to that experience. This is not her fault. It's a common thing to happen to most people after they experience type of trauma. But the core problem of what we talked about earlier, an expectation versus a standard. My friend had, in the time prior to that therapy, largely shed all of her expectations because one standard did not meet that expectation. Granted, it was horrible, but it was still fitting of that designation. The problem is not high expectations. The problem is not being able to be okay with things not meeting them. The standards in your life, the basics, the floors, will often disappoint you. And they should, because they are what they are. They're the bread and butter and the filtered water, not the veal parmesan. A lot of nice restaurants have adequate bread and butter and, fl and filtered water. Not a lot of restaurants have adequate veal parmesan. You won't leave a Yelp review on the first two if they're bad, but there's a much higher probability of leaving one if the third one blows dick. Because when you pay out the ass for what you think is going to be fire Italian food, you better get fire Italian food. If you don't, then your relationship, i.e. your expectation, of that, of that restaurant has been shattered. So, for all the people that want to, quote, get rid of expectations or, quote, not get hurt anymore, I ask you this question. Are you really willing to eat shitty Italian food for the rest of your life? And people would laugh when they see that question. Of course they're not willing to eat shitty Italian food or any food for that matter. But if you don't risk being disappointed and breaking out of the standards to discover a great new restaurant, then you'll never know what on the other side of the coin is. You'll be like the typical person that downloads Hinge or any dating app, always swiping, never getting anywhere. If you never take yourself or your life seriously, you don't get anything seriously good out of the equation. Of course, there will be points in your life where you will eat shitty Italian food. That will happen as unfortunately as the reality is. But I would argue it's, it's better than living a life that's chock full of standards. Vanilla ice cream and white bread and filtered water get old after a while, it turns out. Dating the same type of basic guy does, too, and gets absolutely horrifying if you don't do anything to progress that relationship. 
The same thing does if you're stuck in the, the same thing goes if you're stuck at your job that you would rather shoot yourself in the face than work, or the Shame City television show that you watch on Netflix. When Francis Nagano, the UFC heavyweight champion and the baddest man on the planet, went on Joe Rogan's podcast, he emulated this exact sentiment. Growing up in the Cameroon, Nagano was forced to, forced to work in sand mines to make money for his family. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I knew we had sand, but I didn't even fathom questioning where it originated from. Cameroon, I guess. But Francis Nagano went from working in those sand mines and living a life of horrific poverty to become a multimillionaire and one of the most popular athletes in the UFC. A lot of his other friends, some of whom he mentioned with Ron Rogan's show, did not. Francis Ngano aimed up. Francis Ngano fucked up a lot, also. He got arrested while crossing the Spanish border illegally. He got into a wide-ranging sort of other obstacles before he was able to make his dream a reality. But Francis didn't let those basic standards of everyday life drag him down. His expectations of his dream were too great. They paid off, and they paid off handsomely. It couldn't have happened to a better individual. Don't have standards. Have expectations. Improvement is not setting a floor, but a ceiling. The goal is not to be happy. The goal is to be better. Expectations give you an avenue to do so. Standards give you a path to wallow in the mire in which you currently exist. Expect things from other people and, most importantly, yourself. Do not settle for treating others or being treated like crap, because odds are that is where your life will end up if you're turning to accepting as such. Charlie Shrem has since recovered. He's back in the crypto game, has married his girlfriend, and has a boat. His life is, otherwise, very happy. But Charlie Shrem also didn't know what would happen when he bit off more than he could chew. His insecurity might have driven him off to start where he did, but it also undid his entire life in near-permanent fashion. It's a cautionary tale that we all should listen to. Expectations are things we should have, but also things that we cannot foresee other people to meet. They should be our aiming points, what get us through our day, what drive us to seek better from ourselves and everyone else. When managed and utilized effectively, we can open the doors to opportunities that to our lives without them could not even dream of seeing, just as long as you don't commit artificial cryptocurrency crimes in the process. So, thanks for listening, guys. Have a good one. If you can't tell, I'm really tired, so I'm going to go to bed. Open your mind. Own the day. Have a great one, guys. Thanks for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?